Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Faruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Legends interview series. I'm Sarah Faruya from Sarah Faruya Coaching, and I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life. And everybody has stories, and I want to hear yours and tell theirs, and help you create a lifestyle and a work style that you can be proud of. So today, first of all, happy holidays, everybody. I can't wait to introduce you. I'm so excited for this one. I cannot wait to introduce you to my Mr. December. Um, this man is a living legend. He's a rock star. He's probably already embarrassed by me saying this. When I told my videographer, Kyle, that I had an actual rock star that I was going to interview, he was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he quite believed me until he read the Wikipedia page. So today we welcome a man who appeared in the world on the first day of the 1950s in Mayfair in London. He then went on to become uh, an amazing pianist as a child and followed his love affair with music till he became part of a band called The Love Affair, which had a number one hit with the song Everlasting Love that I'm sure you'll all be uh, very familiar wa with. He then went on to join a band called Mott the Hoople, a legendary band, the rock stars rock band, um, beloved of many, many rock bands who had an enormous hit with all the young dudes and who were supported by Queen. And we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, he's jammed with REM, worked with Yoko Ono, and he now lives in Tokyo. He has been here for many, many years. He is also a, a photography artist. He does beautiful paintings with light um, through photography. He's featured in a Hasselblad book uh, alongside David Lynch with his photographs. I mean, I could go on and on and on about him. Um, one more thing to say is that now he has these fantastic Morgan's Organ concerts in his, uh, in this his studio, his home studio. And he also invites many, many um, people from around the world and around Tokyo and around Japan to come and work with him and play with him. It is Morgan Fisher 
he is a man of incredible integrity, incredible talent and incredible artistry. I'm sure he's dying of embarrassment and pride right now <laughs> in equal measures. So please, everybody, please welcome Mr. Morgan Fisher. All right, Sarah. All right. Welcome to my studio. Thank you so much for having I've, us. I've got my mascot just in case I get too embarrassed. Oh, <laughs> hey. There we are. All right, Ducky. <laughs> All right, Duck. <laughs> All right, Duck. So um, let's let's start, uh, Morgan. So I want to kick this off. As you know, these these interviews that I'm doing are about ways to lead a life, and you've had a long and incredible life. And I would just really love to know a little bit about your background and your cultural heritage and your childhood, if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit about that. Right. Well, you said I was born in Mayfair, which sounds terribly posh, but just that's where the hospital happened to be. Yeah. Within a few days, I'd moved to a little modest gig, modest digs. So yes. I was going to say gigs. <laughs> modest digs that my parents had, which were next to Baker Street, but uh, that sounds positive, but not in those days. Yes. 1950, Baker Street was bombed out slum, basically. Mm -hmm. It was only five years after the war. Okay. And, um, and we only stayed there two years, so I've got no memories of that at all. Mm -hmm. But what I do have memories of is the next place we moved in, which was St John's Wood, mm. which is also now extremely posh and expensive. Mm. And it's the location of Abbey Road Studios. Ah. But <laughs> those days, again, a bombed out slum. No, not that bad. We were in a council flat, mm -hmm. which seemed quite modern at the time. And just as well, because my parents didn't earn a lot. They were both school teachers. Mm -hmm. Dad taught history and mum taught sort of domestic science and things like that to girls. So, uh, you know, an academic background, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, I eventually got lots of O-levels and A-levels because they just, they gave me the genes for it, you yes. know. Then I moved to another part of London, which is where really my most happy memories are, and it's Finchley in North London. So I was eight years old. And uh, that's a big milestone in my life. So I can remember specifically things that happened from that date. And, and Finchley was a really nice area, quite similar to where I am now in Tokyo, actually, because mm. it was not too far from the centre of London. But it had parks and little rivers. And there was even a dairy farm opposite my house, across the main road, with cows. And, you know, I used to go and get milk from in there. Finchley? Yeah, and it's still there. There's still a dairy farm there? Yeah. With cows? Yep. It's the express dairy. Wow. I've seen it on um, Google. I've seen the cows on Google. <laughs> so that's where I grew up. So a pretty comfortable lifestyle. Yeah. Because in, in 1958, you could get a four-bedroom house yeah. with a very big garden mm -hmm. and a small front garden for £3,000. Unbelievable. Worth probably up to a million by now. Yeah, of course, of course. It's but quite a different a, London then, right? It was, and it was a nice area. And um, I later found out quite a lot of musicians lived around there, the Small Faces, the Kinks, and quite a few others. And by the time I was 15, I was a mod. So I've already jumped 15 years. Is that That's all right? Am I going too fast? Ab no, 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 this is absolutely fine. So you right. became a mod when you were 15. and mm. well, When did you start getting into music then? Oh, well before that, actually. Mm -hmm. When I was six, this is another milestone. When I was six, my grandmother and grandfather moved to a beautiful big house in Broadstairs, which is by the sea mm -hmm. on the Kent coast. And um, 
I loved it from the first day. I remember six years old going there and running up the stairs, which didn't have a carpet on yet. So I remember, even remember that noise, yeah. bang, bang, bang up the stairs. Yeah. And they had a really ropey old piano there. And I'd never seen a piano before. And I, I went up to it and I was only little, so I put my hands and I banged it. I thought, that's fantastic. Yeah. It was completely out of tune, but I didn't mind. Yeah. And I banged it and banged it. And within a fairly short time, my mother had taught me a little bit on the piano because she played a bit. Mm -hmm. And she taught me a, a song which I'll never forget called La Mer by Charles Trenet. Mm -hmm. She's one of the beautiful chansons that was very easy to play for a little boy. So that, was, that so I got started then when I was six. And they had, of course, 78 record player. It's a wind-up record player, which I loved listening to. Um, and then by... Well, it took a while. I think by, when I was eight or nine and we moved to Finchley, Mum bought a proper piano. An upright, not a grand, of course, but it was in tune. And I thought, now I want to play properly. Can I have lessons, please? And there was no pressure, because you hear a lot of kids get pressured. Yeah, I mean, I started playing when I was six, but I, I mean, I forget to take my show up late, forget to take my pound note with me. You know, yeah. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't something oh. that I was passionate about. But the funny thing is, I was passionate about it, and I asked to have lessons, yeah. and we found a nice old lady just around the corner almost, and. She was actually very good. And, um, but I didn't practice much. I think the lessons were fun, but then she'd give me homework, something to take home and do. Either I didn't practice much or I was, or I was so quick that I didn't have to practice much. Oh. But I remember, and this is a pattern that has not entirely left me even now. Yeah. Is I, oh, 15 minutes to the lesson. I better practice now and I hadn't done anything all week. And I could pull it off uh -huh. enough to say, that's all right, now here's your new homework. And then I was a bit cheeky because when I was 10, so that's just two years into the lessons, I said to my teacher, haven't you got anything more interesting? This is boring pieces you keep asking me to play, which were written by Bach because he wrote pieces for his daughter. And I remember this book called The Little Notebook of Anna Magdalena Bach. And it was things like... Very simple, yeah. sweet. But I found them boring. And she said, actually, there is... Uh, a course of children's lessons called Microcosmos by a Hungarian composer called Bartok, who was actually quite avant-garde. And I completely took to it like a Dr. Walter, because mm. you were doing strange harmonies, sort of Eastern sounding things, and strange rhythms. So you, you know, you, most music has three or four beats to the bar. This might have five or seven, just exotic things. And I loved it. And so by 10, I was already getting into that, which a mere, well, a decade later, I suppose, I have to say, but it seemed much shorter. I got into progressive rock from that. So good old Sheila Carmichael, my teacher, who I'll never forget. Shout out to, to Sheila. You know, turned me <laughs> on to Bartok. Yeah. Brilliant. What luck, you know. It sounds like you describe a quite a fun and, and loving childhood there. Fun childhood. It was fun, but I think, um, perhaps like many people, the first six or seven years were the most affectionate, I mm. think. Um, 
I actually think I got hugged sometimes. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> when I was that young. Yeah. And I had a baby sister, four years younger than me. Yeah. So when I was six, she was two, and she was like my little doll. Oh. And I had an older brother who, of course, bullied me, and he was two years older. Okay. But not yeah. nasty, just the usual. Just the usual. Jumping yeah. out, of, you know, when we were walking in the street at night, he'd run ahead and then jump out of the hedge and <laughs> woo! Yeah. And I, I, it really was scary. But um, I think, in a way, I could sense something wasn't all right at home. And I th have a feeling that the music was a kind of comfort to me. It was a, it was a safe and peaceful and interesting world. Mm. And I didn't quite know why, but I think in retrospect, I had a sense that my mum and dad weren't getting on very well. Yeah. And as it turned out, they weren't. And by 16, dad had suddenly left to go off with someone else. Oh, I see. So I lost my dad at 16. Yeah. And exactly at 16, I started playing in bands. Ah. So things kind of come along when you need them. Yeah. It's almost by luck, just a friend yeah. was making a band saying, can you play keyboard? said, yeah. He said, well, come for an audition. And boom, boom, I was in this mod band. Oh, wow. What playing soul music. Well, we called ourselves the Soul Survivors. Oh. And... Later, we found out that there was an American band of the same name. Mm -hmm. They had a big hit called Expressway to Your Heart. I don't know if they had any other hits, but they heard about us. Once we'd made our first record, which we did when I was 17, mm -hmm. they must have read about it in the papers or something. And they sent our manager a letter, a cease and desist letter, saying, you've got to change your name. We're already famous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, oh, right -o. So um, I don't know who found it, but... There was a, a, a romantic TV drama called The Love Affair on BBC television. And mm -hmm. um, somebody said, that's a good name. And we yeah. all thought, yeah, that'll do. Amazing. So when, after about a year, I was in The Love Affair. <laughs> Brilliant. And I just, I'm interested to know, like, you obviously decided from that point on to kind of take on music as your career and take that on as your future. Mm. How, how were your parents with that? I was talking to somebody else about this in one of the previous interviews that I've done. Like, sometimes it's quite difficult, I think, for parents of a certain generations to, yeah. to allow people to be artists or to follow music. It's quite frightening notion, or, or sports or yeah. dance. It's a quite frightening notion. What, what was their reaction to that? Well, Dad wasn't around, so it was only Mum. Okay. And I remember when I was 17 and we'd made our first record, which didn't sell much at all, but we were in the running. I just remember going into my mum's bedroom one night and saying, Mum, I want to leave school and be a professional full-time musician. And I really thought, I'm ready for this. And she said, now you've got to stay and complete your schooling. Of course, yeah. Get your A-levels, which is what they called it in those days. Yeah. So that if you want to go to university, you can, you're qualified. Which is all very sensible. Yes. And fair. Yes. But <laughs> I wanted to play, you know. Yeah. I mean, come on. And the funny thing was that both my mum and my teachers, because I had school reports, you know, they said he has to decide between school and music, because they knew at school that I was a musician, as if I couldn't do both. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, that was rubbish because mm. I knew I could do both and I was doing both. So I'm meaning that I'd go and do a, a club gig in the evening, come home, go to bed, maybe 2 a.m., mm -hmm. get up at 5 or 6, do a paper round, 
get some money yeah and go to school all day come back do my homework and then do another gig and i was doing well at all of it and i wasn't tired come on i was 17 yeah. i wasn't tired no <laughs> but they all thought you can't do both and what they were really saying is he's got to do his studies yeah and our school had a very high record of people going to university and they wanted to maintain their record you mm. know? so i i said oh, all right then and um i went into a slump and even then i didn't give up hope but um it was one of the lowest points of my life because right. my pride and joy had been taken away from me and also when I did do it. I said, right. They said, what subject do you want to study for A-levels? And I said, physics, biology, chemistry, and maths, which are all science subjects. I thought that should do And they said, no, that's too wide a range of subject. You can't possibly manage all that. Really? Well, what do you think I can manage? And they said, pure maths, applied math, physics, and engineering drawing for some reason. <laughs> so no biology, no chemistry. So it was all mathematical, basically. Mm. They, they also narrowed my range when I thought, I can do all this. I've been doing all this. I had eight O-levels already, doddle. Yeah. But no, they want to keep it safe so that you get to pass. And so I really didn't do my homework with the enthusiasm that I used to. Because yeah. I was enthusiastic and I liked studying. And um, so even with the lack of enthusiasm, I passed all four A-levels. Not a grade A, but good enough, B or C. Yeah. So what do you think? Yeah. Do you think that kind of mathematical background helped you with the music at all or with the oh, kind yeah. of music you... Really? Oh, completely, yeah. Because music is the most mathematical of the arts ah. by far. I mean, everything is based on rhythms and scales, harmonies. Mm -hmm. And they all can be expressed in numbers. Yeah. You know, 4-4 four, four beats a seventh chord mm -hmm. uh, scale is a b c d e f g i mm -hmm. mean it's all mathematical so there's absolutely no contrast between a mathematical ability and musical ability i think they help each other interesting yeah so what happened the problem was you know after reluctantly passing these things and getting accepted at three universities during that year i was away my band had a number one hit oh. talk about sick Oh. Imagine. And they were on telly every week. Oh. And here's me doing my math and nothing else. <laughs> oh, oh, Morgan, what was the. I mean, <laughs> I mean what was your, ta what's your takeaway from that? I mean, if you, know, if you got a redo, what would be your takeaway from that time? What do you mean? How, how could I look at it more positively? No, how would you do what? it differently? Like, if you had a. I mean, even without the number one hit. Yeah. Like, ha would you push back and say, actually, no, I want to do these subjects? Or would you have said, no, I'm, I'm going to do my A, I'm, I'm going to jib my A levels and do my, do my music career yeah. instead? Or do you just think you would never have done it any differently? Well, like, what I did mean, you learn from that? I'm not, I've, I've never really been a pusher or a hustler. Okay. I'm fighting for what I feel. Um, and it, and some, sometimes in the old days, I used to think, I'm weak, um, I've got no spunk, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not. Well, how I look at it now and how I live my life now is really that I'm, a, I'm more of a floater. I go with the flow. Yeah. And I don't cause waves. But when I'm on something, I'm really on it. Yeah. So if someone does open the door and says, right, let's do this. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. 
and it could be anything mathematics photography music yeah. writing i've done writing and so when i'm given something to do or invited to do something i'd like to do, i'm 110 percent there but when the opportunity isn't there i'm i'm a lover not a fighter mm -hmm. if you like as bob marley said i think um that sort of floating with life and and taking the rough with the smooth and accepting sadness as well as gladness mm. it somehow works for me it seems more realistic yeah yeah and it, i think it affects the music i do that, that that i'm not aggressive i don't want to be rich and famous like a lot of people i know mm -hmm. did and succeeded mm. and you can hear it in the music there's there's, a, there's ambition and aggression mm -hmm which doesn't suit me so well. Yeah. And yeah. I played with a band who were the biggest band in the world. So I, I've seen these people up close. Okay. And I'm not their biggest fan, I'm afraid. So, you yeah. know. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, when you said I'm a person of integrity, when I look back, I would never have said that about myself. I would just think, well, I'm just a wimp, aren't I? And I'm just... No, I don't agree. But I, but I don't think I was. I mean, I was upset by how some things happened, how other people treated me and when mm -hmm. they tried to push me in the wrong direction. But, uh, but it's a, a sort of oriental trait in that you don't, it's like judo, you use the energy of your opponent mm -hmm. rather than hitting back mm. like boxers do. Mm -hmm. And you just, the opponent's energy comes at you and it goes over your shoulder mm. and it doesn't hurt you mm. and you're still standing. Mm -hmm. So in a way, that was probably my life approach and interesting that you've ended up in Japan as well. As well, you're saying all this, I'm looking at your art around the room and the light, the light paintings that you do, and they very much are part of that. F they've got a real flowing feeling to them as well. Mm -hmm. So it seems to there seems to be a thread that runs through the stuff that you do. Would you? Yeah, would you agree? I think so. So when that happened, you know, getting back to love affair. I mean. Um, I remember standing outside the Marquee Club, which is one of the most famous London rock clubs yeah. in 67 and waiting to go see another band and Love Affair all walked by and there was everyone's whispering, it's a Love Affair, it's a Love Affair, Love, they're here. And, the, and they stopped by me and said, hello Morgan, how you doing, all right? And I said, yeah, all right, mate. And they were like really dressed in really cool, brightly covered leather jackets, you know, I thought, well, they're so cool. And then everyone, they went on and everyone around me goes, oh, you know them, wow. And I felt quite good about that. Yeah, I'm sure you did. It's all right, they're my mates. No, because that is miserable, frankly, you know, like just, you know, arguably, like, uh, uh, miserable to be like, right, I'm going to go and do my A-levels. I'll be back in a year. And during that time, they have a number one hit. That's, that's, that's measurably Bloody bad luck, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and I want to try and put a positive spin on that. It's just like, wow. It's part well, of your story, it's part of your history, it's part of who you are, but that is very bad luck. And I've only lost my dad a year earlier as well, so oh. it was a hell of a big double whammy. That's in a in, way. Yeah, that is a double whammy, Morgan. That's a, that's a lot early on. And, uh, but I wasn't... There wasn't this thing about I'm going to be back in a year. I mean, I knew I'd be done with that in a year. Mm -hmm. But as for going back, I didn't know. They got somebody else in, of course. They mm -hmm. got another keyboard player in. Yeah. So here's where one of my first big miracles comes along. Mm -hmm. Is that I finished my A-levels and I'm out of school. And I thought, I've got to do something. I can't just do nothing. But I'm, I'm quite shy oh. to do it. So I asked my best friend at school, can you write a letter to Love Affair? Just say, 
Just thought you'd like to know Morgan's out of school now and he's like, he's free now. And there you go. And that's a simple message. And uh, he wrote it to them. And they wrote back and they actually said, do you want to come back? Because we don't really get on with the new guy we got in. Boom. Back in. Within a week, I was on television. I was a star. Fantastic. In a week. <laughs> That's like, thank you. Did that feel Somebody good? Somebody up there. Did that feel good for you? Fantastic. Yes. Thought, yes. Hey. <laughs> you know, I thought I've done my year's penance. And uh, now I have the right to do this. And then, when I was on television, Mum was telling her friends, my son's on television, you know. <laughs> so no problem there. I was all right so to So she be. was, yeah, okay, I see. So then now that gave her permission to be okay with you doing what you were doing. Yeah, because I was making a few bob. Yeah, brilliant. And yeah. did you ever get, did you ever get back in touch with your dad or was that? Yes. Okay. Um, it's quite sad really about that in a way because, I mean, I, I sort of, I don't know if I forgave him, but I just wanted to see him, yes. you know. And he'd still send birthday cards and Christmas cards. Yeah. Usually a week late, but he sent them anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was still living in London with his new wife, who was actually his best friend's wife, so we already knew her. <laughs> huh. So um, now I'd go to visit his house on occasion. Me and my brother would go. My sister refused to go. My mother definitely refused to go. But me and my brother would go. And yeah go for supper. Mm -hmm. My brother and him would usually have a fight. I was just, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, going <laughs> with like the flow. I like a new place, it's bigger than ours, yeah, got, got some great art on the walls and good food and lots of wine, suits me. That sounds pretty much yeah. like, like your life right now. Nice art on the walls, good food, lots of wine. Oh, yes, <laughs> a bit repetitious, isn't it? Oh well. But the but, other thing I really take yeah. away from this, Morgan, is like you said, like you were quite shy and I just really love that you kind of you didn't just go, oh, I'm really shy, I'm not going to ask, but you got somebody else to do it for you. And I, there's a real wisdom in that. And especially for the people who are viewing this from a coaching perspective, it's like find a way to do what you need to do. You don't have to always push through yourself. You can actually leverage other ways to do things. Does that make sense? Yeah, and ask for help. Very wise. Ask for help from ask people help you trust. From people you trust. Very, yeah. very wise. At such a young age as well. Yeah. Amazing. Now, speaking again of that young age, um, you have loads and loads of video footage of your um, childhood and younger days. Why is that? Is that you that again? Much, but more than most people, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, that's me. Because Dad had a really nice Swiss 8mm movie camera. Yeah. And he never used it anymore. So I just thought, well, I'm going to start shooting. Yeah. So I think the first time it was 1963 when I was 13 I picked it up and it was a lovely piece of work mm -hmm. and, uh, it did slow motion and you could do animation and all that sort of thing and I just started shooting my family first and then gardening and shooting flowers in the garden and and, um, and then I started shooting our Christmas parties because we yeah. always had a big Christmas party at our house and our um, my aunt and uncle and their kids came to our house and grandma and grandpa always came to our house every Christmas. So it was a nice big big meal, mm -hmm. Christmas tree, presents, the whole works. Yeah. Pudding with burning brandy. I thought I've got to shoot this. So I shot it every year for five years, I think. And I, and I, I, ha I put them all together. I was actually cutting film and editing by then, yeah. you know. And um, I put it all together on a big reel of film. 
and I have kept that ever since. And there's not many things I've kept yeah. from my childhood. And then when I got here, I found out that there are places which can digitize it and turn it into a DVD. So um, now it's preserved forever. Yeah, and I'm lucky enough to have been at one of your concerts around Christmas and witnessed this because mm -hmm. you play them on in here on the um, on the screen up there, and I just was so charmed by it. it really, really, it, I'm, I was probably crying my eyes out because I'm like that. Mm -hmm. But I was just really charmed by it, and so like. Yeah, I mean, it's so standard now to do that. But having that is just such an amazing record of a, it's It's not just your family. It's like it's a family of that time. Yeah. I was just really charmed and I love it. And it's so great that you've given us access to that as well for this Christmas edition as well. So Well, I just bizarre. thought, I mean, I thought it's something to share with Japanese people because yeah. they don't really have Christmas parties like we do. No. No. So I thought, well, look, this is what we did with the Christmas crackers and the hats and yeah. and everything. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I love watching it still. Okay. It makes me happy. Yeah, me too. I'm well. not in it mostly because I'm the cameraman. <laughs> There's a couple of brief shots there. Yeah. 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 So let's move on then. So what happens next? So you get invited back into Love Affair. You're on mm. TV. So take us into the next kind of era of, of, of the Morgan Fisher story. Well, I mean, at first it was the number one, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had about five more, and they were just a little bit lower every time. Yeah. But they were there in the top ten, yeah. so we could keep touring around Europe to big audiences, um, two to four thousand probably on average. And it was still like Beatlemania in wow. those days. If you've ever seen a Beatle concert, yeah. you can't hear the band because there's all that screaming. Uh huh. It was like that. Wow. It was weird, because <laughs> I can't hardly hear the bands or anything. Yeah. I'm just like, I suppose we're going all right here. <laughs> and there's a row of security men pushing the girls back at the front of the stage continually. And, and then we get outside after the gig, and there'd be no security at all out the back. And we'd have to fight our way to our car yeah. through this crowd of clawing girls. Wow. And they'd pull your hair and pull your clothes. But of course it was exciting, you know, yeah. to have that experience. But eventually we thought, well, we do want to play music more than just have this mad adulation. Mm -hmm. um, and around that time, lots of amazing bands were coming up, which we all loved. Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd, you know, the more progressive, interesting side of rock was really flowering mm -hmm. in the mid to late 60s. So um, we wanted to sort of head that way. In fact, on our second album, we tried to go that way. We even changed the name to L.A. <laughs> and I think most of the fans didn't know what the hell we were doing. They so you just went to hits. prog rock? We went to prog rock, basically, yeah, and, and the fans just didn't get it. And so after about, how many years was it? It was 68 to 71. Just three years for very intense years. Um, we decided to call it a day, and then I formed my own really prog rock band, and I couldn't think of a, a name, so I just called it Morgan. Which <laughs> is quite a prog rock name, because it's the really? name of... Well, yeah, because there's there's, isn't there like a, a sorceress called Morgan in the like uh, Arthurian oh. Tales or something yeah, like Morgana, that? Maybe. Yeah, 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 something like that. Anyway, so it, it, I, I, I see that. <laughs> Morganatic marriages they used to have. Okay. Yeah. Well... And that was the drummer from Love Affair, so we stayed together. Yeah. And then we got in a bass player and a singer who played guitar. We thought, well, that's enough. We 
as the keyboard is the main feature of this band. Yeah. And um, I was really getting, I actually got out my old Bartok and Stravinsky books and started nicking bits from them and making songs out of them. Yeah. So I could bring that into the, into the band. Mm -hmm. And uh, the singer was interesting because he impressed me very much with his voice and his songs. And I said, well, what, what have you been doing till now? And he said, well, I just was in a band called Smile. Oh, okay. Now, so early on, this is late 71, and I met them. And he said, well, here's the drummer, Roger Taylor, and here's the guitarist, Brian May. Yep. So, and then one day I went to his kitchen, and he said, oh, Morgan, here's the new singer in Smile. And there's this rather strange sort of Persian or something looking guy, all dressed in velvet, who put out a floppy hand and went, hello, <laughs> I'm Freddie. <laughs> oh, hi, Freddie. All right. I didn't make much impression at that point. Yeah. So that's how far back my connection with Queen goes, is to before they were Queen. Right. And especially Brian used to come and see the Morgan Band nearly every time we played in London. So mm -hmm. he was a fan and probably nicked a few bits f for their band, you know, so... Fair enough, we all do that. Well, I was going to say, all art is theft, darling. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> That's not my quote, and I can't remember who it is, but it is. <laughs> I think it's fine, and I think I'm flattered. So, you know, we, we didn't do that well, and we actually went to Italy, because Italy was mad about prog rock at that time. And there were so many bands in England doing it that we couldn't get a deal. But our manager, who was the manager of Love Affair and the father of our drummer, had a leather company, well, a handbag company. He had a handbag company, and he dealt with Italian leather company. And somehow, through an Italian connection, he got a meeting with RCA Records in Italy, a huge record company, and they signed us up. So we went to Italy to record. And it happened to be probably the finest studio in Europe at that time. It had more technology than Abbey Road or anywhere else. So a great studio to be in, and a great experience being in Italy. Lots of fun, lots of wine. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so we, we good made times it. then? Yeah, I mean, the musically it was great. We made a couple of good albums, but we never really got off the ground. So again, that lasted just a couple of years. In fact, the second album, the record company said, we can't release this because you're not selling enough. So really, that was it. So I, again, took the rough with the smooth, and I thought, well, I gave it a good shot. And by that time, I was only 23, <laughs> but I was already feeling a bit jaded, like, well, uh, maybe that's it for me in the music business. Because uh -huh. it had been five years of full-on solid work. Yeah. Know? I mean, no, no holidays. Touring, interviews, recording, just again and again. It's full-on, mm -hmm. which I, I thrived on. Yeah. But I was a bit exhausted by it and a bit disappointed that we hadn't yeah. done as well as we could have done. Had you, are you proud of those albums that Morgan oh, did? Oh, yeah, I still love Good them ones. now. In fact, yeah. I played one the other day here to an audience. I played the song, which I don't think I've, I've actually played myself since then. And I just went over to the piano and I remembered it all. And it's like really complicated. And I thought, it's all in there, isn't it? Yeah. Perhaps I should start playing it again. I don't know. But um, I still like it. So I just thought, well, I'll just get some odd job or something to pay me rent. I'm still living at home. I was paying rent. Um, so I got a job driving an off-license van. An off-license meaning a liquor store or an exactly. alcohol shop. Which was a quite a nice job because I was delivering liquor to people. That makes people happy. Yes. You always see a smiling face. Liquor man! Yeah. Come in! Yes! yes. <laughs> so, you know, lots of nice customers, happy people. And I did that for 
five or six months, I think. But mm -hmm. I kept my eye on um, the Melody Maker, which is the main music magazine at that time. Yeah, yeah. And in the, on their back page, they had ads for bands seeking musicians. And I kept an eye on that, seeing if there might be something good. And I didn't have to try at all. I mean, once again, it's like, it's like I put my mind to something and it's just like, there it is. Yeah. You know, it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. So the first I've ad I tried, that. I mean, yeah. you know, I didn't have to go banging on doors. The first ad I tried, and it didn't say who they were because if they're famous, they don't want to put the name because sure. they get besieged by fans. Yeah. So a big name band, needs a keyboard player, um, and with an imminent American tour. And I thought, ah, never been to America. I like the sound of that. So I went down there. And this is not something I would advise everyone to do. But what happened was I got there half an hour early and it was a nice sunny afternoon in Chelsea. And next to the studio was an off-license, <laughs> a liquor store. So yeah. I thought, well, I've got half an hour. Time for a quick one. And I've never seen this before or since, but they were selling these little one-glass sachets of wine. <laughs> I thought, well, that's perfect. I just had the one. I thought, well, I can't drink it out of the sachet. I'll probably spill it all over my shirt. So I said to the guy, do you mind if I borrow a glass? And he said, no, no problem, which is probably completely against the law. Oh, yeah, because it's like he's You can't drink you. in the office. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But he didn't mind, so, yeah. so I opened it up, poured it in the glass, took one sip, and after one sip, the bass player, who turned out to be Mott the Hoople, mm -hmm. came in and said, oh, are you Morgan? I said, yeah. He said, can you come down to the studio now? I thought, well, I'll just walk in like this. You know? So you walked in with a glass I of wine in, in your hand. Glass, you know, suavely with a glass of red wine. Whereas probably most of the people who came in prior to me were like nervous and said, uh, my name's Bill, you know. And yeah. I just come and say, hi guys, what's up? You know? yeah. And <laughs> I swear that's 50% of me getting the job yeah. amazing and the, the, again there's that kind of integrity and that authenticity as well it's like i'm coming for the i'm coming for this i've got my glass of wine i could leave it behind and be all kind of meek and mild and try and play the game but actually you were just like i'm halfway through this so i'm bringing it through <laughs> i love that well, and uh, i know you said you wouldn't recommend it and i wouldn't recommend that for an interview either on the other hand it just seems to weave together this story of this integrity and this authenticity throughout it's almost like I can't, I can't think of an example, there must be an example in a movie of somebody stumbling through life, perhaps even with blinkers on, but somehow they always fall on their feet and they're just in the right place at See, the right I'm not time. hearing stumbling yet, at all. I'm hearing well, no, but with happenstance. No happenstance. Yeah, but no real More. plan, though. There's no... St I mean, I I'm sure there's disappointment, or you you've expressed disappointments and stuff like that, but... Mm. It feels more like happenstance to me. No plan. Yeah. All no right. plan, but a vague desire to play a bit more, if okay. I can. And I found one ad, and I went there. And, and there you are, with the glass of wine in your hand. Amazing. Yep. So, um, so Mott the Hoople then, and I would recommend to anybody who's watching this to go on to YouTube and take a look at Mott the Hoople American Tour, which is Morgan's... Um, Morgan actually narrates this and it was on dvd but now it's been put on youtube and it's a really interesting documentary about their rock star life i mean it's fabulous i've watched it loved it so i highly recommend that but i'd love to hear from you now what it was like to be 
part of Not The Hoople. They'd had a huge hit just prior to you joining. Is that right? All the young dudes. Story of your life. <laughs> That's right. I let them pay the dues. Yeah. And I'll yeah. just swan in. And then in. you're like, I'll just go and join. I'll just swan in and get the cream, you know. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So, well, um, so, so you joined Mot the Hoople, and so tell me about that experience. How long were you with them? Mm. Um, of course, you recently reformed and had another uh, an enormous renaissance recently, but we'll come back to that later. Mm. But tell me about that time. I mean, that was like real rock stardom, wasn't it? It was, and um, I'd seen them once before, but that was during my prog rock years, and I think I was musically a bit of a snob. So I thought, well, they're all right. Oh, we've all been there, love. Yeah. I've been a terrible snob in the past, yes. Uh, <laughs> I just looked and thought, it's basic rock, it's good, people seem to like it, whatever. And, uh, but when I got to play with them, and first of all, they're just a lovable bunch of guys. What, the hoople? Yeah. Seems like it now as oh, well, having sweethearts. watched your footage. Yeah. yeah, I mean, most of them are from Hereford, so they're kind of oh, yeah. country style, not, not sophisticated, cynical Londoners, of mm -hmm. whom I'm, I knew many. Um, and I just got on with like a house on fire. And in fact, I moved in with a guitarist immediately. He said, I, I want to move and share a flat. Do you fancy coming in? I said, great. So my first um, flat of my own, because I was still with my mum at that point, yeah. was with the guitarist. So he, he sort of gave me a soft landing. That, you mm -hmm. know, For anyone, I think their first flat might be a bit scary. Or maybe not for some people. It's like, oh, free at last. Yeah. But it was that too. But, but he was a nice cat. Nice guy, and we got on. And um, I don't know. Yeah, the, the tours were at a high level already, bigger than anything else I'd done. Probably double the size of anything Love Affair had done. Yeah. Plus um, enormous amounts of travelling in America because there's so much distance to cover mm -hmm. that you find yourself flying nearly every day, which is like, whoa, hey, you know. Yeah. I'm a yeah. jet setter now, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you get on the plane, and of course I drank too much most of the time. Yeah. And I get on the plane in the morning and, uh, right, I'm not drinking anything. Maybe not ever again, but not today. Anyway, I'm not going to drink anything today. And the charming stewardess says, would you care for a cocktail, sir? And you're like, yeah, mm. go on then. <laughs> oh, if you twist me, I'll have a Bloody Mary and then two more. And then you're, on, oh, you're back on it again. But yeah. yeah, I was only 23. Yeah. That. I, I realise how much you can do. That People have always said to me, that's too much. You can't handle all that. I bloody can. Yeah. And when I was 23, I must say I did drink a lot. I put a bottle of wine away before the gig, you know, yeah. just in the dressing room. Uh -huh. off, easy. And then I'd take another bottle with me on the stage, put it in a nice bucket, properly, yeah. and drink while I'm playing. Sophisticated. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, another thing I like to say is that some people say, well, you know, you think drinking sort of relaxes you and makes you play better, but actually you think you're playing better, but you're not really. And I have my trump card because I say, excuse me, have you heard the live album? It's still now considered one of the best live rock albums ever. Amazing. And I played things on that that I could never do just sitting here at home because mm -hmm. I was high on the audience. And if I'd had a few glasses as well. It didn't, didn't mess me up. It, yeah. it freed me up. Everyone's way. different. And again, I'm not recommending it to anybody. Nope. But when I look back, I played some serious good pianos during that, those tours. Yeah. You know, and I have the evidence. So, um, 
and you get so much energy from a, a, a really enthusiastic crowd. Yeah. And in America, they know how to show their enthusiasm much more than Brits. Yeah. You know, <laughs> rock and roll, and they're on their feet immediately and stay on their feet for the whole show, you know. Amazing. And if, when you get two to 5,000 people giving you that every night, you're just as high as a kite after the show. So you, you really responded well to that? Oh, just, yeah. Yeah? Fantastic, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolute delight, and um, and meeting American bands. We met some fantastic bands who opened for us. You know? mm -hmm. I mean, New York Dolls was one band who I loved, and they oh, were wow. like punk before punk. Yeah, because this was '73, and punk didn't happen until '76. Yeah, but they were pure punk, and they were fabulous. I watched them every night. It's so great when you've got a support band. You can you can go and watch them every night, and you you love it. Yeah, and that sets you up to do, go on and do your set. Yeah. Instead of just sitting in the dressing room board, because you don't think the band's much good, you know. Yeah. We need someone to inspire us and to challenge us. Mm -hmm. Right, we're gonna we're gonna do better than these boys because they're already great, but we're greater. So you you love a good a good gig. You love a good rock oh, band. Good love band. It. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. So they were like a real, the New York Dolls. I mean, they're iconic as well. But how yeah. about any other bands that really stick out for you that you worked well, with? Well, the very first um, gig I did with Mott was in Chicago. And the opening band there was Joe Walsh and Barnstorm. Now, he's not that famous, except that he joined the Eagles soon after okay. that. So that's Joe from the Eagles. Yeah. But I'm not a big Eagles fan. I think it's soft for me. Yeah. Joe's band were rocking yeah. fantastically. I think that was his peak mm -hmm. in his career, actually. And when I saw them, I thought, we're going to follow these guys? Blimey. Yeah. And actually, it worked out great because he had this sort of surging oceanic American sound. It was kind of swinging almost. And we come on and just flatten everyone to the wall with our hard British rock and roll. Yeah. So it was a good combination. Really. Brilliant. And so what happens next then? So you, 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 you get on the Mott train, you're doing Mott the Hoople, and then what's the next chapter for you? Well, the band went through a couple of changes. The guitarist left, who I was living with, yeah. to form a band who did quite well called Bad Company. <laughs> right? Yeah. That was funny. I had no idea that he was, he was planning this, except that, you know, we're in this little ordinary apartment in Chiswick in West London. And this, this friend of guitarist, Mick, friend of Mick, came over about once a week and we just play cards. And, mm -hmm. and I, I'm glad he came over because I was a bit of a fan because he was a singer called Paul Rogers, who used to be in a band called Free, who I loved. Okay. And he kept, kept coming over to see Mick and I didn't think anything of it, but obviously they'd been plotting yeah. for Mick to leave Mott the Hoople and form a new band. Okay. And there wasn't any um, obvious conflict in Mott the Hoople. I didn't notice anything. What I found out was that Mick was writing songs that weren't suitable for Ian Hunter to sing. Okay. And he just wondered, what am I going to do with these songs? Because I've, I've got more and more of them. And I can't sing them myself, he mm -hmm. thought, because his voice is a bit weak. So he found, like, the man that they call The Voice. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul Rogers is acclaimed mm -hmm. as one of England's finest so they were a marriage made in heaven, really, mm. those two together. And then they found two other great members and Bad Company just sort of whoosh like that. Yeah. Massive yeah. overnight. So I was very happy for them. and I, I used to go and see them play and all that. So we got someone else in. Um, 
which is Ariel Bender, who is the guitarist that we you have now. Have now. He's he's wild, isn't he? Oh, he's a nutter. Yeah. yeah he's a, he's so a nutter. such an eccentric, and I, it's uh, it's I really enjoy s watching you and him together on stage. You know. Yeah. Oh, we have loads of fun. Yeah. But then another guitarist became available. I feel quite sorry for Ariel now when I think back. But another guitarist became available who our singer Ian Hunter had had his eye on for a long time. Yeah. And would rather have had him in to replace Mick, but he wasn't free. And this was Mick, another Mick, Mick Ronson, who played with Bowie for several years. Not just played with them, he helped to arrange and produce and everything. He was a big influence on Bowie all through the Ziggy Stardust era. Okay. So absolutely brilliant guitarist, a beautiful looking man, great yeah. dresser. He had it all, you know. Yeah. And when he became available, I, I mean, I didn't decide it, but Ian Hunter just said, right, we're getting him in. I'm sorry, Ariel. See you later. How do you, how do you kind of deal with stuff like that? I mean, at the time, like, do you get, is it all, do, do, are people like, yeah, I understand, I get it, or are they like, what? Or, like, does it, does it, how does that affect the dynamics of a group? I mean, even I can see you still now feel a little bit sad about that, like, a I bit know, like, I oh. I do, but, you know, Talk about passing the buck. People do this, and I'm afraid yeah. I've been at the wrong end of that as well. Uh, as I'll tell you later, maybe. But um, we got our tour manager to tell him. Okay. None of us could tell him, <laughs> especially our singer, who's the one that had decided it. And um, we sent him off to do the deed. So I never really got a chance to see face to face yeah. how he reacted, because it was done at the end of a tour where there was some time off, so we weren't meeting every day. Well, it's nice to know that like things cycle back and that you are all mates now. Right. That's, that's one of the things that I really enjoy about these mm. interviews and, you know, about just lives of different lengths. I think when you're 23 that can, or 24 or 25 or whatever, that can feel like fatal almost. Yeah. But actually, like, you know, now you are all in your 60s, mm back again on the on the road again and great mates yeah. so it's not a terrible terrible thing always no it's not at the time maybe but i suppose in a way it's like relationships sometimes you feel it's not working anymore i'm sorry yeah even if you think it is it's not working for me yeah so I'm, I'm sorry we have to call it a day and um i think life is really about that life gives you and life takes away from you mm. And that's that's always going to be the case. Yeah. Nothing's forever, yeah. except a certain few really good marriages I do know, even in the rock business. Uh -huh. Most things aren't forever. Yeah. And get used to it. Yeah, get used to it. Which and is we the whole are. thing of Sakura, watching the cherry blossoms. There they are. Aren't they beautiful? Oh, they're gone. Yeah. Oh well, they'll probably come back again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's if you don't if you can't get used to that, I'm afraid you you're going to suffer. Yeah, and I, I, I love that you've mentioned the, the sakura because I play that metaphor out even further to I, I actually love when the green starts coming through and then mm. it's in full green until the autumn yeah. and then all the leaves fall off to allow the light in during mm -hmm. the winter. And that's the thing I love about bare trees. I, mm. They let the light in when that's there's true. no light. Yeah. And that makes me feel so delighted. Yeah. And so this kind of cyclical way of and the rhythms of nature, and I think you perfectly align that with life there. Mm -hmm. Really nice. There's a word in Japanese I love to use, and it's, 
initially I thought it was only applied to music, and it's about up and down, mm -hmm. light and shade, as we say. Mm. And it's Medi Harry. Medi Harry. And it even sounds nice. Yeah. It sounds like a bloke called Harry is merry, but, <laughs> but the Medi Harry is like the up and down, Medi yeah. Harry, Medi Harry. So light and shade, and that's the essence of life. Really. Most certainly yeah. is. Most certainly is, Morgan. Um, so, so then, so then you go through a couple of iterations of Mot the Hoople. Mm. What's the kind of, what's the what's the breaking point there, and how do you react to that? Well, that was a breaking point, and uh, quite shocking. We were really on, on on the up then, and we'd got this fabulous guitarist who I yeah. couldn't wait to make another album with because I knew the quality of his work. Yeah. David Bowie's album, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, nothing better. Uh, at that time, I reckon, and um, we made we just recorded two songs together. One of them was our last single, and it was brilliant. We'd also been working with this new young band who were challenging us a bit, called Queen. They supported you, right? They supported us twenty times in England and twenty times in America. So we got to know them I quite just, well. I have to get my head round that because, like, I'm just talking to you, and it's like Queen supported you <laughs> uh -huh. I know. and you're still friends with brian is that right or just oh yeah brian came and yeah. played with us in yeah. london last yeah. April. yeah but um so anyway the they supported us because uh, somehow their manager and our manager got together and made a deal and said right well here's a new band we'll give you a chance on our tour mm -hmm. so it was their first album was out and they were just getting going you know i remember the schedule too because there's a website with every concert we ever did on it in those days, we do 20 gigs and have maybe two days off. The, the, you know, the scheduling was bonkers, vicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but again, we didn't mind. Yeah. 23, 24. Yeah. yeah. No problem. Get on with it. Yeah. So we did that. And the Queen were, um, I never felt challenged by them, actually. But a lot of people, well, not a lot, but some people say, oh, Queen were better than what? Or that gig, oh. or something like that. And a lot of people say they really gave us a run for our money. And I never felt that, because I thought they have a very different approach to what they're doing. Yeah, it's quite different music. It's different music, and I felt that they were really trying hard, almost trying too hard mm -hmm. to impress mm -hmm. and to be wild and dynamic. Well, it paid off, I think, don't you? Well, I, d <laughs> you know? I don't see them going anywhere myself, but, you but know. Yeah, they might be all right. <laughs> bit showy. Anyway... <laughs> You know, whereas we were like relaxed and, and yeah. half pissed. Yeah. <laughs> I just stroll on stage looking brilliant and you know, yeah. pressed up, but we just strolled on stage and did it. And they admired that in us because Brian has said more than once that we were like a, a, a textbook lesson in how to be rock stars, how to do it properly. And, and so they got something from us, I think. And then it just so happened they got so big so fast that they never supported anybody else again. So to get back to the story, on the last night of that tour, that British tour, it was in London, we had a couple of special visitors who came down, David Bowie and Mick Jagger, came to see us play. Apparently at that time there was a bit of a scandal going on, where are they having a fling? Yeah. Getting into their bias. Oh, thing. how fabulous. So they've been... I'm not against that idea. <laughs> Well, someone said to me, you know, well, that Mick Jagger, he never did that again, did he? I've never heard of him mm -hmm. trying it. And I thought, yeah, but he certainly picked a good one, didn't he, to do it with, yes. if, he, if he did it. For sure. And they like winding people up and causing a bit of rumour. Yeah. And so they came, 
and they wandered into the dressing room shortly before we played and I remember handing them paper cups of really bad wine because <laughs> that's all you get when you're on the road. That was your rider. And they were fine, you yeah. know. Oh, thanks, Morgan. Yeah, mm -hmm. All right. And then, uh, and when they uh, when we played, I was at the far right of the stage, as I nearly always am, and just behind me, I'm literally six feet behind me. Those two were dancing arm in arm, mm -hmm. the whole show. Mm. And I was like, I was I wouldn't say I was nervous, but I thought I better play good tonight. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And that album, that that gig was recorded. And that's half of the live album that I just told you about. Yeah. So I guess I did play all right that night. Great. So we were all set then to do a really big American tour, including Madison Square Gardens, which is a massive hall in New York. I saw York. Stevie Wonder there recently. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, we were just on the up. And then suddenly our singer called up uh, our bass player and said, um, I can't do it anymore. I've had a kind of breakdown. Oh. And the doctor says, I mustn't tour. Mm -hmm. And it's just the tour was off. And within a very short time, not only the tour was off, but the band was off. And he left the band. And he left England and he went to America and started a solo career. So talk about another having the rug pulled out from under you again. <laughs> and so how did you manage this one? Well, it was, we were numbed. As, as they like to, as people like to say, we were shocked and stunned, you know. And you never thought like to bring in another singer? We did. Oh. Oh, yeah. Very quickly we mm -hmm. thought, well, let's keep going and we'll shorten the name to Mott and find another singer. So we did, who was completely different to Ian Hunter, which we wanted. Yeah. We didn't want a copycat. And we did that and made two albums, but it never really took off. And this would be in 75, 76. And just about then, punk was coming up. And punk musicians were being very, uh, well, they were saying anything before punk is rubbish. It's dinosaurs or it's old farts. Mm -hmm. And we were only about five years older than the actual punks. Mm -hmm. Who we got to know, by the way, personally. Yeah. Because, you know, London's actually a small place. Yeah. You live there and you meet everybody. But basically the band didn't work out. But then we got another singer in and did two more albums. We changed the name of the band to British Lions. And this singer was a very good songwriter, so we made some really good albums. And somehow we keep it going, you know. Um, although the record company weren't very good at promoting the albums, they were very good at making them, and they mm -hmm. put a lot of budget into that. So we had, um, for one album, we had the Beatles engineer in the studio with us. Mm -hmm. For another album, we had Jimi Hendrix's engineer. So the albums sound great, and we enjoyed making them. And we did some tours. By this time, we were the support act. But again, it was fun because we supported ACDC and status quo. So we were rocking all over the world. Uh, see what you did there. What? <laughs> rocking all over the world. There you go. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't back in black, but we were rocking all over the world. <laughs> I'm back in black tonight. Yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, we carried on having a good time. Somehow we managed to keep body and soul together until the British Lion's second album was... Again, I had this experience of the record company not wanting to release it because it wouldn't sell enough. So then another band went down yeah. in the pan. And so how were you feeling at this point? And how do you kind of... Well, by then it? I'd spent about five years on a roll with Mott the Hoople and the following bands uh, at a very good level. But I could see the, um, 
the problems in dealing with major record companies because basically they're pressuring you to have hit, hit after hit after hit, which is fair enough because that's how they survive. But um, I wasn't enjoying that pressure anymore, especially when it wasn't working. So I yeah. thought there's got to be another way. And I was totally inspired by the punks' do-it-yourself attitude that they didn't need a record company. I'm just going to go and get 500 singles pressed and I'll sell them out of the boot of my car <laughs> personally to people and make a lot better profit per record than I would if I was with a big company. Mm. And this, this do-it-yourself attitude permeated England at that time and, and totally inspired me. Mm. I didn't suddenly want to form a punk band, yeah. although I did play with one or two, which, mm -hmm. which was loads of fun. Yeah. But I wanted to go indie. And by that time... The technology of making a studio in your bedroom, which is now everywhere, all over the world, mm -hmm. had just become available. It wasn't, it wasn't computers yet or any of that, but there were smaller tape recorders which were good enough quality to make a record in your bedroom. So I managed to buy a system like that, and I had a little flat in Notting Hill Gate, and I went in there, and I felt like I want to be like an artist. I want to go into a room make something and come out and say, look, all my own work. Uh -huh. Which means I'd written the song, I'd played it, I'd sung it, I'd recorded it, mixed it, designed the album cover, everything myself. And Amazing. I did that. And I found a friend who was starting, he wanted to start a record label, something like that, where you don't have to have big hits and big budgets. He encouraged young artists to make it on the DIY level but he would help with the distribution so he would get it into shops nationwide which is a great attitude because you know most musicians don't know how to do that bit. yes of course not but he did because he'd been working for big record companies so he had all those contacts so it was a really good relationship we had and i remember him saying to me one day whatever you record i'll release it and i'll distribute it so it's complete carte blanche complete freedom go ahead and so i did and I spent a couple of years, really creative, busy years, and made four of my best albums in my whole life. And there's Them. your integrity and authenticity again. Like, I like punk, I'm going to do the DIY, I'm going to get into the DIY, I want to do this, but I don't want to do this. Just such, yeah, it's, it's a theme that runs through, through everything. So, and then. Yes. <laughs> and then. And then. OD'd on my own creativity, I think. Uh -huh. No, I very quickly, I made one album. I mean, the other albums I basically played myself, but one album, it was actually after he'd said to me, you can do anything you want and I'll release it, because he'd already released a couple and he liked what I did. So I sat down at home and I wrote a list of all the people I like to collaborate with. I thought, next record, I'll get someone really interesting to work with. And the list got longer and longer and longer until it filled the whole page. Mm. And I thought, I can't choose, I can't choose. I'm sure they're all available one way or another. So why don't I just get them all on one album? <laughs> Meaning everyone gets one minute to do whatever they want. Very simple concept. I actually put my money where my mouth was in, in a funny way by buying little reels and putting a minute of blank tape on there and sending the reel to each artist. Mm -hmm. Most of them didn't even have their own studios, but I thought it's nice. It's a nice way of presenting the project rather than just a letter. Yeah. They, see, they can see I mean what I'm doing. Here's a bit of tape, fill it up. Mm -hmm. um, 
But eventually I just went round their houses and recorded them myself, which was fabulous. Yeah. All kinds of people. I mean, mostly obscure, sort of cutting-edge artists. But people like the singer in The Damned oh. and um, the drummer in The Pretenders and the leader of the Penguin Cafe Orchestra, which oh. is another band I loved. I love And um, R.D. Lang was another mm -hmm. one, the, the anti-psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I'd heard that R.D. Lang wrote poems and re read them with music. And I went to see him in a jazz club and he was doing that and I asked him. And he said, yeah. Hey, I'll give it a whirl, he said in his Scottish accent. Mm -hmm. So I went round his house and I found out he's quite a good piano player. So I recorded him playing the piano. So that sort of thing happened out of this project on zero budget. But I just went round meeting all these amazing people and collecting all these one minute pieces. And I called the album Miniatures and just put it out. And it's still a, a sort of cult classic now yeah so i think people really love who i chose to put on there and there's been quite a few similar projects since mm -hmm. but mostly in the very avant-garde scene mm -hmm. whereas mine had comedy had pop it had all sorts of things on there. it's a complete cross-section of music and poetry and creativity fantastic which, which makes it an evergreen album so creative um, so creative, but you say you OD'd on your own creativity. What do you mean well, by that? Well, I'm simple thing. I used to like having parties, and, and rather like this album project, I used to like inviting different kinds of people mm -hmm. to parties and say, right, get on with each other. And so you'd see Brian May talking to some young punk with a safety pin. Yeah. You know, I thought, great, they're all getting on. Isn't that nice, you know? And uh, the last time I did it was in my flat, my studio flat, and... Uh, it was just fate, I think. It was getting louder and louder and madder and madder, and there was people dancing, and all the lights were out. And the, the speakers started to break up and distort. It was like Armageddon. like Everything was going... <laughs> and then there was a massive noise and everything. And I suddenly got the feeling, I need to get out of here. I need to go away. What do I need to do? I don't know. I need to make space for something. So I'm going to go to a hotel and check out of my own party. And in fact, I think I'll go to the Ritz Hotel because I feel something's, something's coming, something good. I don't know what it is, but the Ritz Hotel seems to be in order tonight. <laughs> and I, would, I don't know how much money. You know, I yeah. called them. They said, well, can you pay cash? And I said, yeah, I can. Okay. And I thought, well, I'd better wear a suit. So I managed to change into a suit and tie and I got a taxi to the Ritz. And I woke up next morning to an incredible breakfast with those silver domes over yes, everything, you know. Yes, And I just thought, right, that's it, I'm going to India. Possibly forever. Because I'd already gotten into meditation. Yeah. Which we haven't talked about at all yet. No. But I'd already got into it by then. And vegetarian food, I was trying to clean up my act, which actually tremendously helped the creativity. So this all happened at the same time. This DIY thing came at the same time as the, as the clean-up of my health. After all those mad rock and roll years, mm -hmm. I was pretty tired by all that. So I cleaned up my health and cleaned up my act and my creativity and I just suddenly had this idea of there's a big decision coming so I go to the best hotel in the world to give it space to just blossom. And, oh. and there it was, you know. Oh, I love that. Wait, <laughs> you, you went to the best hotel. Yeah. You can feel something. Okay, Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this in Big Magic when you can feel something coming in and you have to give it the space to start. And it's like, wow, okay, so you knew what you were doing there. You had to give it the space to start. 
and to give it the space to come through. Mm. All right, so you end up in an ashram. So I just love that so much. Like mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, what do I need to give the space to start? Do I need to book into the Ritz? <laughs> I wonder. All right, let's go. Let's keep going. Well, I mean, and I didn't know what was going to happen. I just knew that I had to get out and do this thing. Yeah. Um, and honour something. Honour it. And do it properly. Mm-hmm. And, and I woke up, you know, and I called my best friend who was running this record company, who I, you know, who'd given me the, all this carte blanche. Mm -hmm. In fact, he'd helped me with the whole thing, vegetarianism, meditation. He got me involved in all that as well. So this one mm -hmm. guy came along and, you know, changed my life, basically. Mm -hmm. But I was ready. That's the point. You've got to be ready. Because I think people like that come around all the time, but you've got to be ready. Yes. You know, so wait a two. second, so people who are kind of miracle workers or what, people who are, what, what, what would you say, people who have got something for you or who are going to give mm. you a sign, they're around all the time, but you've got to be ready for them. Tell me more about that. Well, what do you I, mean? I love I mean, it. I love it when things like that happen. And I've written songs instantaneously when something like that or somebody like that mm -hmm. has happened. Yeah. Suddenly the sky opens, you know. I remember... One time I was staying in a farmhouse um, very close to Mount Fuji by myself for a few months. A friend had just lent it to me and I thought I'd give it a go. An artist I know, living, a Japanese artist living in Tokyo, sent me a postcard and he said, um, I've just become part of this charity project for, for blind children and it's being led by a blind artist. And I thought, wait a minute. A blind artist, mm. and there was his art on the postcard. I'm tearing up now. Oh. <laughs> it was beautiful, you know. I thought, whoa, this guy who's like could be a tragic cripple is helping other people. And uh, I just went to the piano and I wrote a song, and it just happened like that, you know. Beautiful. And, uh, and maybe I've been ready for it because I was I'd taken the space to get away from busy Tokyo. I was actually a bit bored living on my own next to Mount Fuji yeah. because uh, I had no friends down there. Yeah. And the countryside was lovely. but So this just a postcard and it just went like an arrow yeah. to my heart. Opened something up. And it's one of the greatest songs I've ever written. Oh. And... Uh, that's not the first time either that something's happened, you know. And so when things like that happen, you think, well, there's probably miracles happening all around you. You're just missing them all the time. I mean, just watching a sunrise is a miracle right there. Mm. But, um, but something comes along that it's like a bullet with your name on it. <laughs> like, this is for you now. Yeah. Boom. Boom. Now, can you take it? Can yeah. you take it is the point. I yeah. could have just said, oh, that's nice, a charity thing. Put the postcards Yeah. Up. But it just, it tore me in half. Uh-huh. And all my, my resistance was gone. It know? tore you in half and all your resistance was gone. And right. then you made something beautiful. And there are miracles flying all around us. And we just have to be ready to let them in. This is absolutely beautiful. And some of those miracles that are flying around may not be ours to... They may not be ours to take, actually. They may be just flying past and you see them out the corner of your eye and you go, oh, 
I think I might want to do this, but it's like, no, this one's for Morgan, actually. Or, no, this one's, <laughs> you're like, oh, I think I might want to do that. And it's like, no, 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 that one's for Kyle, the videographer who's just behind the camera there. So, you know, I love this. It's like, oh, my God, it's really, oh, I've got goosebumps all over my body right now. FBGs, FBGs. And um, <laughs> it's just, yeah. It's like real artists like yourself, real writers, real people who live in that complete integrity. Oh, wait. Oh, God, I'm just having a moment. Kyle, it's you and me. It happened to you and me. I'm sorry, I'm just talking to my videographer now. Right? Okay. (laughs) Oh, leave that in. (laughs) All right, so it's like when these things kind of happen and you come together... It's like, wow, okay, you just have to be ready for them and just show up for them. Oh, mate, thank you. That is just gorge, gorge, gorge. All right, so um, so we've kind of jumped forward to Mount Fuji. Let's jump back. back again. Yeah. All oh, right, the, so you've in d- you're, in the, you're in the Ritz. I'm in the Ritz. You decided so I've had to go to breakfast. Yeah. I've decided I'm going to India now. And then I call my friend up, who's influenced me so much, who run this Indies record company, and mm-hmm. I said, would you like to have supper with me at the Ritz? And he said, well, not, I don't really feel like going out today. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. I've made the decision I'm going to India mm-hmm. as soon as possible. And he said, ah, all right, let's mm-hmm. celebrate. So he came, and uh, we all both had to wear a tie. I said, you've got to wear a tie. <laughs> and we came, and we went to the main restaurant there which is incredible it's an oval shaped room yeah. and the ceiling is curved and it's painted like sky and clouds oh, wow. so it's just a gorgeous room yeah much better than any other so-called posh place because mm-hmm. it, was, it was like being outside it was amazing and we did the full thing right down to the cigars and brandy at the end you know and but during the day after i'd called him and invited him i just went for a walk nearby the ritz and there was a church almost next door and I just went in there and sat and sat for a long time and I'm not Christian at all my parents were actually communists and I had no religious upbringing except for the usual detail (laughs) anyway we don't need to go there but okay so you went into the church and I just sat there for a long time and just let let myself sort of pickle (laughs) you know marinate let myself marinate in this new thing that had opened up for me you know, just what's it feel like? You know, it feels good. It feels all right. It feels very vulnerable, but it feels good. So I needed that space, and I've always loved um, sacred spaces of any kind—a yeah. church, temple, whatever you want, pyramid, museum—just places with space around them that mm. you can just sit and be quiet. I've always appealed to me. Mm. So I kind of love that in myself that I can. I can take the benefit of these places without getting too involved and mixed up with the doctrine yeah. that they built around it, which is often a bit messy, yeah, sure. in my opinion. So, you know, but I know that it's worth experiencing. So that was that day. And then I got back to the apartment. What a mess. What a mess it was. I can imagine. <laughs> and I had to clean all that up. And I thought, wait a minute, there's... Life has its responsibilities. There's physical things you've got to handle. Exactly. So I said, right, I'm going to give myself three months to tie up my loose ends, and then I'm going to India. 
I was quite surprised how adult I was behaving is not my usual way. I said, three months, get everything cleaned up. I think there were certain contractual obligations that I also had to deal with. And uh, so I did that and just about gathered enough money to make a, a long trip to India, including selling basically everything I had. I started taking a few records out, thinking I don't really need that one or that one, and eventually they were all gone. All 5,000 LPs were all gone. Oh I didn't God. miss them at all. Yeah. I thought I could always buy them again later. And then I started selling the instruments, and that was the big let go. Mm-hmm. You mean I'm, not, I'm selling my tools as well? Yeah. Yeah, why not? I've been working hard for, by that time, 10 straight years, working full on really without a vacation. So, yeah, let them go, because you can always buy them again. So I did, and that, so I decided to finance my free time. It was my sabbatical, if you like, Yeah. with an open end. You know? Yeah. So I ended up in India for four months. And I won't go into too much detail about where it was or who it was, but I can certainly bring up some of the things I learned from that. And um, it, what was good about it was it wasn't just sitting in and chanting Om all day. It was it was um, a place where you could do all kinds of therapies, mm -hmm. which I'd done a bit, some some work on myself, some counselling. Yeah, you, you know, mentioned that. And, I, and, and a lot of it was available there because it turned out that a lot of therapists had felt limitations in their own work and they thought meditation could help their continuing evolution. Mm -hmm. And so they managed to combine meditation and therapy in a very interesting way in this place. And so I, I experimented with lots of different things and looked at, to my, looked at myself in different ways. I looked at my family. And um, I'm really, you know, the older I get, the more I realize I, I wasn't sure at the time where I really got anything from it. Yeah, because it's not instant coffee. No, no, it's not. <laughs> 20 years later, you might think, of course. Yeah. And that's what she taught me, that therapist. Yeah. I've got it now. Yeah. And, that, and you need that time. Yeah. And so we're talking, it's now 38 years ago, so it's 1981. Love that. And I'm still having realisations from things that I'd done. Yeah. In those four months there. Yeah, so you still, so that four months that you had there is still keeps giving back to you now. Yeah. Yeah. Are you a fan of things like therapy and, and counselling and that kind of thing? From time to time. Yeah. Yeah. Or even just a book. Yeah. Or something. It's fascinating, um, isn't it? Like we're learning yeah. about yourself and learning about humans and the human condition and everything. Because you mentioned to me that you were kind of like, what? What's going on? Who am I? <laughs> and like, you know, you yeah. were saying it was quite weird when you were in the band. It was like, we just had all this adulation from the age of like 19 to 23. It's like, it's weird. So what did you kind of... <coughs> You know, what did you find out? Not find out about yourself, but like, what was that burning question? Because this is interesting to me as well, because obviously we've talked about your integrity, we've talked about your authenticity, we talk about your artistry, we talk about these miracles that keep finding you, we've talked about kind of all, all this kind of the esoteric, but also the, in my, in, my, in my business, I call it the science, the psychology and the supernatural. So you perfectly kind of described those three things. It's like, oh, yeah, I do have things in the physical world that I need to look after, science. Psychology, what's going on? Who am I what? Mm. And then the, the, the supernatural, which is those kinds of like, oh, hello, 
<laughs> thing that I'm supposed to be doing. I yeah. better give you some space. So, what was what kind of prompted you is to to go exploring in that way? Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, right from the my first band's first hit, I was going, well, this is none of my doing. Okay. It could have been anybody in this band. I just happened to be a member. Mm -hmm. um, just a bit of luck, really. And it was. I mean, later on, I, t I took more responsibility for the actual playing and I started composing. And I realized, well, I'm now a big part of what this band's doing. But Love Affair, it didn't matter who was in the band. It was really the singer with an orchestra. Yeah. They were all professional musicians, the orchestra. So okay. that's how records were made in those days. But yeah. I was getting all this adulation just for being there you yeah know? and it's almost like in those days people would go and see bands just to see them yeah oh there he is yeah He's the one i saw on telly yeah so you know and then i went through a very deep musical experience with my own band and, and seeing what, what am i capable of you know and trying to make it difficult and complicated and pushing myself you know and um there's always a niggling feeling. And, and, and people, I mean, I used to do interviews then, you know, with journalists, and they say, yeah. well, I mean, what, what do you think there's more left for you to do? What's left for you to do? It's like they think, you know, well, I've done this, I've had those hits, I've done all that, been, been around the world. And I always, my stock answer was, I've only scratched the surface. I'm, this is just the beginning. Yeah. And people were surprised by that. And yeah. I thought, well, thank God for that. I'm glad I've got this constant itch and dissatisfaction that well that was great but that's not it either well you still have that yeah. now don't you because didn't your mum live to be 95 or something sorry did your mum live to be 95 yeah and my grandmother like so i can remember having a conversation with you saying something like i'm just deciding what i want to do for the next 30 years and i was like doing the maths and i was like oh wow so you still got that itch right to keep like keep oh. creating and keep waiting for the miracles to arrive and so on yeah, I've got another, if I, if I follow my mum, I've still got another quarter century left, yeah. so plenty of time. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I was like, aren't you, aren't you thinking about retiring? I, mean, I probably oh, will never please. retire, but yeah. My, my, my dream of the perfect passing on of a musician is like one of my favourite bass players came to the Blue Note in Tokyo when he was in his late 60s, played a wonderful concert, went to the hotel, put his head down, I never woke up and I thought, that would do me fine. You play on the last night of your life mm -hmm. and then you slip away quietly. Was that from Chic? No, it was, a, okay. no, it was Booker T and the MGs who were okay. a Stax Records soul band. Yeah. And he was a bass player called Donald Duck Dunn. <laughs> and a uh, lovely okay. man, great player. But to play on the last night of your life and then slip away quietly would suit yeah. me. Much rather than any kind of... Uh, Lingering illness. Sure, please. sure. And, um, but I don't know what retiring means. I'm no, just alive. You're just alive. While my body's capable, I just keep doing stuff. I and, love it. Uh, you know. So many ways to lead a life. It's just very, probably very different from the teacher model where you, you know, you get your pension, you start early, then yeah. you work towards your pension and then you finish early. I sense the frustration in both my parents with that. Oh, really? You know, that they were. They were working with a curriculum, so they're handed something to teach. Right, well, you've got to teach this, the same thing every, mm -hmm. every year. You know? Yeah. Now we go back with a, with a new lot of pimply students who've come, and we're going to start yeah. again at the beginning of the book and do it all again. Yeah. I mean, that's got to be 
soul destroying. So, well, think. it suits some people, doesn't it? You know, yeah. some people have that 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 suits them. That's there. But yeah. like for for people like yourself who've got that deep, deep kind of miraculous artistry, that kind of mm. I don't know what what's the what would be the word for it. Well, the thing is, I mean, I realise now I have, I have a sort of teacher instinct in me. You know, I like explaining what yes, I'm you doing. Do. Yeah. And I like telling people how to do it. Well, this knob does this and that knob does that. Yes. But I don't want to formulate it into a series of lessons. Yeah, sure. Which is why I've you never really been able to be a teacher. Yeah. But when people ask questions, I'll answer them in detail. Yes. You know. Yeah. But that suits me. So you got yeah. the, you got that, that, that great skill from your parents as well. I think so, yeah. Brilliant. Um, but what happened, I mean, just to move it on a bit. Yeah, I let's mean, move it um, on. After India, I went to Brussels. It was a seri another series of random occurrences, mm -hmm. really. But I ended up in Brussels for a year, where I basically learned to speak French properly. Because I could already speak some French, because my parents being teachers, the entire family had long summer holidays. So we would go camping in France Same. for two months yep. every year. Yep. And, you know, for, since I was a little boy. So I picked up French, as kids do, very quickly. And so I could speak it pretty good. And then being in Brussels for a whole year, speaking nothing but French all day, every day, mm -hmm. just nailed it. And I never picked up a book. It just... It's, it's called osmosis, and it's the, the loveliest, laziest way to learn is immersion. Yeah. Which is what all children do. Yeah. They learn to speak. Yeah. You don't give, have you ever seen a book that you give to a one-year-old saying how to speak? <laughs> no. They can't read yet anyway. They immerse, and they, it's a miracle how yeah. a little baby will learn to speak, and all those words, they just get it. Yeah. Well, I got it with French doing that and yeah. I feel sorry for people who are learning a language that's from another country that's far away if you're going to learn it just go there yeah and stay there and force yourself to speak it all day every day so mm -hmm. anyway that was a, a, another nice experience yeah. which I benefited from and never forgotten yeah and then I went to America because I was now out of England that was like I'm away I'm now an expat I've decided that because the punk era had come and gone and I wasn't that keen on what replaced it. Yeah. Sort of slick synth pop, very manufactured, very clever. Yeah. Not much passion. Um, not all of it, but most of it. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like but that. But it wasn't your cup of tea. Um, no. And, uh, and plus Thatcher was in and that wasn't yeah. a very happy time either. So, you know, I never even, I don't even remember consciously thinking that. I don't like the music. I don't like Thatcher. I just moved. Yeah. So those big decisions come with no planning, no logic. Or no. Why are you doing that? I don't know. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And that's most of the big jumps in my life have happened. Just like you go with the tide. Sometimes I don't know where that tide comes from, but it just takes you. And so it took me from Brussels to America, and I wandered around America for a couple of years, actually. And then I remember sitting in New York, and here comes another little miracle. No, I'm sorry, not New York, Los Angeles. I was sitting there with my English girlfriend, and I hadn't really succeeded in getting any good work other than odd jobs. And um, I thought, well, it's time to go somewhere. And a friend had a big atlas like that, and I opened it to America, and I looked at all the main cities. I thought, well, I've been to all of those. Nothing's grabbing me. What's the next page? And literally the next page was Japan. 
okay. And and a light went off, and like it's just like, that's it. No question, we're off, and within a week we were here. And with five hundred dollars between us and no possessions, not a word of Japanese, no <laughs> friends here, no house here, no job, nothing. Just came, started from zero, which is one of the greatest countries to start from zero in, I think, because mm -hmm. you're so. You feel so safe here and so cared for by the politeness of the Japanese people and everything. I fell in love with it from day one. Oh. And this is 19, 1985. And I started off teaching English. That's all right. It's quick and easy. Get some money. Um, and I found I wasn't very good, again, because oh, curriculum. I you. You Me know, too. Curriculum. <laughs> yeah. So I played with it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I go and buy. I was still very much into organic foods and all that. I go and buy organic uh, rice crackers, senbei. Yeah. And, so, and the most people didn't know much about organic. It was very minor in those days. Yeah. And I'd hold it up and say, have you heard of organic? And oh, I said, right, well, we're all going to eat one now. So you eat one, you tell me what you like. And I just play with the lessons a bit. Yeah. But there's a limit with English teaching. I thought, well, this, this is not really my cup of tea. And I found through a, a classified ad, a copywriting job, uh, writing about Yamaha synthesizers in English, which is a great job, and I learned to use a computer from that job. Wow. And uh, it paid well, and got into that. And then a couple of people who knew me, I knew that some people here would knew, know me from the major bands I'd been in. Yeah. I had no idea that anybody knew about the minor stuff oh, I'd well, done. Oh, well, that's Japan, isn't it? Yeah, nerds, right? <laughs> Nerdy, <laughs> otaku... <laughs> Maniac, oh. all those great words. Um, oh, yes. Had written about it in magazines. They didn't, it's even been released here on Japanese labels, which nobody told me. And the bloke came to me and said, look, I've got your album. It's got Japanese notes on it. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. And they asked me to play in little clubs. And I had no gear, so I just played a piano, for starters, and just improvised. And yeah. it was like really starting from zero again. Like, you are now a different musician. Oh. And, and you can play whatever you want, and they'll listen politely. Oh. They won't shout, all the young dudes! You, know, they won't, you <laughs> yeah. won't get any of that here. People yeah. don't do that here. No, no, no. People are interested in what you're doing. They're very interested. Yeah. They're very attentive. And so that really encouraged me to try new stuff. Mm. And then one of the first albums I made here was called Water Music, which is very symbolic of my flowing tendency. Of you know. And that was made in three days just by improvising. And I thought, I, I know how to improvise now. And that, that is something that is the, that's my favorite way to play. Because you start with nothing. You don't come with a plan. For a lot of people improvising, yeah. you know, for jazz musicians, you improvise on the melody. So you have a song everybody knows, you know, My Funny Valentine. And mm -hmm. you improvise on that melody. But you but improvise, I improvise on zero. nothing. Yeah. And I might do something like this. I'll just pick up a... Something that makes a noise. And I'll start the concert like that. Think, right, what shall I do next? You know, and I'll pick up another toy maybe. Yeah. And then I'll go to the and play one note. Mm -hmm. and just where are we going today? Yeah. yeah. And that is the most delightful way to create, in super my opinion. Super creative and you super. You've got to start with a blank page. Yeah. And just go for it. You know. And it's so nourishing. Yeah. People sleep when I play sometimes because yeah. they feel so relaxed. Yeah. So great, you went to sleep. Good one. Yeah. 
<laughs> you're just letting people go with the flow and yeah, go yeah. with your flow as well. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So Japan and you start to perform here. So, all right. I'm super curious to know how did you end up working with Yoko Ono? Because didn't you do a special album about her, uh, her husband's work? It's, again, it's one of those things where you just say, how about this? And it happens. Oh. No effort, no pressure. Yeah. And no plan. So I made my first album for actually quite a big record company here. Eventually I made an album for one of those companies. That was Water? No, no that was a very small Indies label, Water. Mm -hmm. Yes. Actually I was asked to do a film score first and the, the film score led to a soundtrack album from a large record company and then mm -hmm. they said, well that was good, do you want to make another album? So I made another album which was only piano and I thought, I've got this time I did this. And it's one of the hardest albums I've ever made because there was no frills, no fancy business. You just got to go to the piano and do something great. Yeah. And hopefully mostly improvised. And, and so I sometimes I just couldn't do it. So I'd just go for a walk around the town and, and, and come back desperate. Like the walk didn't even help me. And I come back desperate and I just go there and go, maybe this will work. And I just put my hands on the keyboard and something happens. Mm -hmm. So sometimes there's, a, there's an element of desperation, but you don't give up, you see, you're desperate, but you keep going. You're desperate, but you keep going. Yeah. So you just don't give up and you keep, you just put your hands on there. Yeah, and then they start to move. And then they start to move. So you just take some action, any action, even inside desperation. Yeah. That's a good one. Okay. Well, it works out to be one of my most popular albums here. And um, mm -hmm. I called it Peace in the Heart of the City. Oh, you sent me this. Okay. Yeah, you sent me a link to this when I was feeling a bit blue. There you go. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, my, f my reason for the title was, like, as I said, I lived near Mount Fuji for a while. I got lonely. And for me, the country is a place to visit. Mm -hmm. And the city is a place to live because mm -hmm. I'm a Londoner, maybe. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing nicer to me than being in a nice park in the city, so you can have tranquility. Five minutes up the road, there's a nice little park. Yeah. But there's other people around who are also feeling relaxed and happy, and mm -hmm. kids playing. And that makes me, you know, happy. Yeah. Than just being alone, looking at Mount Fuji. That's very nice. But yeah, so it sounds like it? you benefit <laughs> from having people around you as well, and from that. feeling that connection and that energy of people. Yeah. Huh, okay. And they, they gave, the, um, uh, they gave the album a Japanese title, which is a bit different, but they thought it would be a good, uh, a good selling point. And it was called Toshise Katsusha no Tame no Ongaku, which simply means music for city dwellers or music, music for city workers. So they got the essence of it. And that title, I think, helped it to sell a lot more. It was so easy to understand. Yeah. And there's so many stressed out salary men here. Yeah. They're looking for something like that. True. And because of that, fairly quickly, I got an offer from the Osaka City Council, where in 1990 they did a big expo related to plants and flowers and, and forests. And, and it, was, it was called Hana no Banpaku, which is, means the kind of the flower expo. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to play in the main pavilion because there was pavilions from all over the world and they wanted me in the main pavilion, the Osaka City Pavilion, which was the only permanent building they built there. All the rest were just for the duration of the 
expo and then they were destroyed and the park was made. So I played in that building for six months, oh, yeah. every day. And people might know that because that very famous Taro Okamoto? Well, that was an earlier... Oh, was it? I beg your pardon. That was 1970. Okay. Uh, actually, it might have been 64 because I think that's when they invented the Shinkansen. Okay. It all happened at once. Ah. I, I could be wrong. That might be the Olympics. Okay. But anyway, this was 1990 and uh, it was a beautiful experience and paid very, very well. So, um, you know, something that I've got from nothing, from me wandering around the streets in, in emotional pain, coming here going, oh, all right, let's do that somehow transmitted to even the old fogies on the city council of Osaka <laughs> who said, this will be nice for everybody. Aww. And it was. Yeah. And one thing I can remember that still tears me apart, after one of those afternoon concerts I played there, to people who didn't know me from Adam, they were just there for the expo, a very old lady, probably in her 80s, came up to me with tears in her eyes. And she said, you reminded me of my childhood, your music. I thought, oh, doesn't get any better, does it? No, it doesn't. So, you know, I didn't plan to it. I didn't plan to make, I didn't like people calling my music healing music, which is a very common genre then. Yeah. But they, they did it as a compliment, they called it that. But I thought, I had no plan at all to heal <laughs> anybody. <laughs> But I just thought, I've got to do something because I'm so frustrated. This is it. I, what do you think? I don't know. I don't know if it's good or not. Well, and, some they, people, and then it yeah. reached people. Yeah. Some people maintain that when we he do something to heal ourselves, we're healing other people anyway because what mm. we need, somebody else needs too. True. You just make such a strong connection with people, don't you, um, Morgan? Like, it, I can really understand that. Mm. I can really understand that. Like... Some people are so different. Some people would be happy in the cabin by the mountain. Right. But that peace and tranquility for you comes from being around people as well and having some kind of contact with them. Mm-hmm. so beautiful that you know yourself so well. So I haven't answered your question No, you yet. haven't. So let's do that now. Yeah, you haven't answered my question, and I wondered if that was deliberately. So how did you end up working with Yoko Ono and doing, a, um, uh, doing an album of her husband's work? Is that right? Well, that's it. I, I was thinking of what to do next because this album had gone quite well. I thought, well, what's next? Because I don't have an automatic sequel ready. No. I haven't composed much at all since then and I don't fancy walking the streets in, in sheer desperation trying to dig something else up. No. It wasn't much fun, frankly. So <laughs> I just thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to relax and go and see some movies. So I went with a friend to see a movie called Imagine. Oh which was the first full-length movie that had been made about John Lennon um, and his passing and his wife. And it was a documentary. And uh, I was so moved by it, I thought, that's it. That's my next album. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to do John Lennon's songs and the love songs because I'll, I'll stay with a quiet piano approach, mm -hmm. so I can't do any rock stuff. But he's written so many great love songs. There's plenty for a whole album there. Mm -hmm. um, so... I nearly finished the album and I just casually said to the record company, you know what, it'd be nice to have Yoko Ono do something on this. And they said... I love that. Oh. Just casually mention, you know what, I wouldn't mind Yoko Ono <laughs> to do this. But, you yeah, know, imagine. speak your mind and look what happens. Yeah, and they exactly. said, oh yeah, our record company president, he's a friend of us, he'll, he'll give her a call. 
and he called her and she came, she was happening to be coming to Tokyo like a week later or something and, and she said, well I haven't got a lot of time so can you record me in my hotel room? I said, sure, absolutely. Now you know what she sings like. It's yep. a bit like fingers on a blackboard. It's her own Which style. Which is brilliant for, for certain songs. Yeah. But this is a very quiet album. So I said, would you mind just reading the lyrics of, of one of John's songs? She said, certainly. Because by that time, we'd already spoken on the phone, and I thought, she's got a nice voice. Yeah. It's quite soft. Yeah. And so we, we discussed a few songs, and we decided on this song that's simply called Love. So it goes, love is real, real is love. Yeah. Love is touch, love touches love. It's just beautiful. So I, I recorded the piano first, and then we went to her hotel room, the Okura Hotel, yeah. of course, mm -hmm. and uh, she put the headphones on, listened to my piano, and, and read the lyrics several times, and it was such a moving oh. thing, her reading her dead husband's lyrics. Because it wasn't long since it her husband had been after. killed. Yeah. It was ten years after. And, um, she told us lots of lovely little stories and anecdotes about her and John, because he spent a lot of time in Japan with her. So yeah. she was lovely. She just told us stories. So we did that. I was with her for about three hours, actually, in the hotel room. And some nice photos were taken, which I still have. And um, then I went to the job of mixing, because I wanted to play with her voice and make it a bit avant-garde and sort of do looping and things, and, which was quite new at that time. And she called me to check how it was going. She called me about three or four times in the next couple of months to ask how it's going. And uh, it's funny when she called me because she said, she'd always say, hi, this is Yoko. And I'm going, wait a minute, I know about 45 Yokos. Um, oh, thank you. And I'd say something. So she'd talk more and I'd realise, because I'm not going to say Yoko who. I said, oh, yeah, thanks for calling. And she thought, like, ah, okay, it's that Yoko, because she speaks really good English. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I'd say, where are you today? Because every time she called me, she was in a different continent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sweden, uh, Switzerland, New York, whatever. Mm -hmm. But she made some very clear suggestions about what I could do with the song. Mm -hmm. Very specific. So I thought, she knows about studios. She's learned the craft. You know, she's an artist as well, though, isn't she? Yeah. In probably a similar kind of vein that you are. She is, and, and so she's very specific. Right from the beginning, she was, her work was very specific. It wasn't vague, wishy-washy, mm -hmm. impressionistic. It was one statement, mm -hmm. like a word yes written mm -hmm. on the ceiling, which is what John Lennon fell in love with her yeah. because of. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, obviously, she'd learnt about studio from working with John, and she knew even the names of certain pieces of equipment and stuff, so... It was really nice yeah. to keep the, keep the thing creative until we were both satisfied. And did she like it, the final product? She liked it a lot, and she sent me a Christmas card that year saying, mm -hmm. I've just listened to the album again, and I really love it. So I thought, yay. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> superb. So what comes next then? So, I mean, when did you start getting into your light photography and the Morgan's organ, and mm. what, what, what? How does how do we kind of bring ourselves up to date? So that's the 1990s. Well, to me, the 1990s still feel like about five years ago, but it wasn't. I know. It's weird, isn't it? <laughs> I know. <laughs> You're like, oh no, it's 30 years ago. Um, but like, what what happens in the interim? Then do you just start to 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 gather this kind of 
group of people to come here to your studio, this beautiful sacred space that you've created? Or what, how do we get to where we are now? How does the light work start? What, what's, what, what's going on? Well, I don't know how much time we got left. <laughs> very briefly about the light, the light art. I used to call it light painting. But that now, a lot of people are doing it. But for most people, light painting means you put the camera on the tripod and you open the shutter and then you wave lights around in front of it and draw in the air with lights. Well, mine's completely the opposite. I wave the camera around. Oh. And it happened because of, uh, about mid-90s, I was in Hawaii at Christmas. And over there on Christmas, they decorate the outside of the house. Mm -hmm. So people have lights all over the houses. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. I'm going to take some photos. So I did, and I tried to take some photos, but this was in the countryside, so there wasn't city lights all over. Yeah. It was just one house in a completely dark space with lights. So the shutter speed was quite long, mm. and, and there's, it's very hard to hold a camera steady yeah. for like a whole second. So nearly every shot was wobbly and blurred. And I thought, well, that's awful, isn't it? I thought, it's, I have to get a tripod. More happens properly. <laughs> but, yeah, mm -hmm. I looked at it again, this is a, this is the days of prints and film, so I had to wait till the next day to see it. And then I looked at it again. I thought, actually, that's interesting. That is. Yeah. It looks sort of painterly. What would it be like if I wobbled the camera even more instead of the opposite? And so I started doing this with the camera, or I'd hang the camera on my neck and ride a bike mm -hmm. while the shutter was open mm -hmm. and just see what I got. And that was tremendously exciting because you never knew what you're going to get mm. and it wasn't like digital where you can see it immediately you had to wait till the mm -hmm. next day so you had to be patient plus there's the cost <laughs> digital all free but this one you had to pay for every print yeah and i threw away 80 percent of them because mm -hmm. i didn't like them but some of them i really liked and i thought i'm going to keep going with this and i've kept going for over 20 years refining the technique and using different kinds of light sources and it thrills me it's like Music for the eyes, to me, is what it is. Yeah, I mean, the one that I'm yeah. looking at me, looking at right in front of me now, is just so gorgeous and fluid and mm. ethereal. I think would be the right word for it. It's almost ghostly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I mean, I know I, I saw a book once, which was written, I think, early 20th century around the time of certain spiritual movements that were happening and I can't remember the name of one but uh, it's quite popular but one of those people wrote a book about the, the energy of music and he had drawings in there and he, and he had like a cathedral with the organ playing and above that he would have a shape which is the shape of the music and he related certain colors to certain spiritual states mm -hmm. and emotions mm -hmm. and it was quite quite a sort of hack job. He wasn't a great artist, but there was something very touching about it. the notion of it. Yeah, yeah, about expressing music visually. Mm -hmm. um, and they did say that the most spiritual colour is this kind of light blue, which I really like, actually. So, you know, I'd seen other people that had this similar idea, and so I just kept going with it anyway, and experimenting. And I, I still love it, because yeah. what I like is you, you surprise yourself. So you're not completely responsible, but you have to initiate it. Yeah. And you have to get the gear and set it up and, you know, do, get it exposed right. But you're not dictating. No, the and then you thing. have to hand it over to something like the that. Which I, I swear know. is, frankly, maybe why a lot of great musicians have used drugs for a similar 
get out of control. And you've never used drugs, have you? Never. I find that remarkable given your history. <laughs> it's people find it hard to believe because yeah. I've certainly had plenty of opportunity. But um, you know, this may be silly too, but you've got to you've got to trust your silly, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Another phrase there, trust your I silly. Put that um, <laughs> hashtag trust your silly. There you go. I was fortunate enough to have been born at the time of a golden age of music, no question. Um, and when I was 16, a new artist came to London to try and make his way. And I saw him playing in pubs. When I was 16, I shouldn't have been there in the pub. And I didn't even have a drink. And he completely blew my mind to the extent that I think that was my drug. That any other drug would have been a pale imitation because mm. this was real. It was music, it was loud, it was inspiring to a volcanic level. Yeah. And I went to see him at least 10 times and as, as he got famous, he played bigger places. But I saw him in pubs at least half a dozen times. And he was as good, the first time I saw him in a pub, he was as good as when he played at Woodstock. And that was Jimi Hendrix. So, who needs drugs when you've, when you've had that experience? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I tried a, tried a little bit of a smoke sometimes and it just Not made me feel a bit sick. So I didn't, and the rest of it I didn't fancy at all. Not yeah. at all. So I didn't touch it. Wow. And um, oh, I like to drink, no question there, but no, never bother with drugs. But Jimmy did, right? Jimmy yeah, might have been on acid that night. Yeah. Charlie Parker, Miles Davis. I mean, the fantastic music. Maybe that was what their, their key was that. That was their ally, their Unfortunately, opening. Unfortunately, it can kill you. Yeah, and but does regularly. I mean, at least Miles Davis lasted a good few years. Mm -hmm. Not Charlie and Jimmy. They Sadly. were gone. Yeah. But uh, so that, I don't know where, how we got here, but that let go of, you know, you've got to prepare your palette. I mean, look, all these are all my brushes and colours. Yeah. You've got to have that ready so that then stuff can just start happening and you know how to let it happen you know so you have to prepare your palette yeah palette so that you can allow stuff to happen mm. and then on those times when and just be ready yeah whether it be writing or whatever you're doing writing right. making music and then do something and so along came a great opportunity for me to explore this more because i've tried doing it alone at home many many times and I've noticed sometimes, like when I buy a brand new keyboard, or it might be an old vintage one, but one I've owned before, the first time I play it, something great happens. In fact, I remembered wisely recording the whole day what I played on this new keyboard. And out of that, I got a lot of really good songs. So I'd never touched this keyboard before. It made sounds I'd never heard before. And boom, it was there. But you can't do that all the time no. on your own. You just you hit a brick wall somewhere. And, and because you're on your own, you think, oh, that's no good, I'll stop. But if there's one person in the room, and I've done that here, you can't just think, well, this is not going well, I'll just stop. Because they're, sit they're sitting yes, there listening, waiting. Yeah. and you want to keep it going and do something lovely. Mm -hmm. It's like cooking a meal. You've got to give the whole meal. You can't just have one, one potato and think, oh, this is rubbish, I'm, I'm going to throw it all away. Yeah. You've got to keep going. And so it's that thing of keeping going beyond what you'd normally do. I was given this chance because an English friend of mine, a, a great architect here, opened a club called Super Deluxe. And it was a brand new club in Mark 2000. Mark Dyson. Mark Dyson. Yeah. 
in 2003, mm -hmm. and I went down there and I thought, oh, this is lovely. It's such a it's such a bigger space compared to most clubs. Yeah. And I like the feeling of it here, and I like him anyway. So we're, we're very close. And I said, can I play? He said, sure, of course, play, play. So I did a gig, and I said, I love it. Can I play here once a month? He said, of course you can. So this was Morgan's Salon or Morgan's Organ? It was organ? Morgan's Organ, yeah. that's what I called it, yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> wasn't just organ. Naughty Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and, I mean, I was doing fairly well writing music for TV ads and films right. by then. So I thought, well, this is going to be my little exploratorium, if you like, where I'm just going to experiment and I'll bring a different keyboard or a few keyboards and devices down each time and see what I can come up with in front of a small audience. Right. Which they had to be there. So it's, I'm going to make it free. Nobody pays, which means there's zero pressure on me because you can feel it. There's an expectation. Yeah. If people have paid two, three, four thousand yen to see you, well, I better be good and I better do that. You, yeah, know? But so you can't you escape that. that. So There's I was like. That integrity again, Morgan. Well, it right? worked for me, yeah. Yeah. It worked for me, and yeah. uh, I think people appreciated it. And I got some regular customers who kept coming. They mm -hmm. liked the price. I think they liked what I did too. Yeah. And I recorded every one, you see. So I'm now sitting on an archive of a lot of good music. 200 hours of good music because I did it for 10 years. Wow. Every month. Which kind of brings us up to almost up to date then up to 2003. Mm. When did you move into this space? Uh, 10 years ago. So 10 years 2009. ago. 2009. 2009. And this is really a fantastic studio that you've built up here and you now do your salons in here, right? I do, yeah. And you, I mean, it's hard to believe that you can get what, 40, 40, 40 mm. people in here? A bit like that, but I, you know, that's all I right. know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, and this is where you perform and you have guests in and so on. Mm. And this is where you get to play things out. But I'd just like to kind of just say, like, when we met for the first time a couple of years ago, um, you were kind of at an impasse, if I remember rightly. Mm. And so you arrived at my doorstep. And then, again, miracles started to happen. So would you want to tell us a little bit about that? So at that point, you had Morgan's Organ, you had your salon here, but the, the nature of the of advert music and so on had started to change. Is that right? And so There was a bit of um, a recession, frankly, okay. and the budgets started to shrink. Yeah. And I still continue to do so. Yeah. So I'm not doing as much of that work as I used to. Yeah. And I was a little bit worried about that because this place is not cheap. No. But I love it, and I've got to keep it going. Yes. And um, actually, the funny thing was, I just had an inheritance around yeah. that time, and I hadn't a clue what to do with it. And um, the mind goes through things, doesn't it? Even when good things happen, your mind worries. Yeah. Well, I've got to do something. I've got to make a bold gesture here with this this little windfall. Interesting. Buy something amazing, or go somewhere amazing, and. And I couldn't think of anything. You know, I was looking at catalogues and things, catalogues of instruments, cameras. And I just thought, nothing's like grabbing me. Usually I have no problem buying things. Why am I having a problem here? And I just had to accept or decided to accept that maybe I didn't need a dramatic, bold gesture right now. I need to just chill. Because it's the old Merry Harry again, you know. There's your ah. Merry and there's your Harry. Perhaps this is the Harry time. Yeah. Don't fight it, you know. Just let it happen. 
So I think. But that I told can sometimes you absorb that. inheritances. Is that right? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. It goes quick. What I mean, what brought it home to me, even more than that, was that um, you know this this guru in India that I'd spent a few months with had a very good turn of phrase about all sorts of interesting things. And he was talking about when he was young and he was a wild man and he would explore and experiment. He used to like jumping into whirlpools and jumping into rough seas to see well, how do I get out of this? <laughs> that's so, that's the, right? that, that, that sounds terrifying to me. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And he might even have been kidding us, but the point was they're like parables. It doesn't even matter whether he really did it, but the okay. parable teaches you something. Yeah. But one day I had the chance to find out for real. So I was in the sea. I went swimming by myself on a beach and it was a windy day and I didn't care much and, and the waves were a bit high and I didn't care much. And I was just, well, hey, this is fun. And I swam out a bit, not that far, but I swam out. And I thought, well, that was fun. I go back now. Where's back? I couldn't see the beach. This is a, not, a, not an exciting moment. So the waves were kept going up all around me and I didn't, couldn't see the beach. I tried to jump up, couldn't see it. I was out of my depth, so I couldn't jump up very high. And then I remember what this bloke had said. Um, just go down, go down where it's quiet. Take a break. And I, I thought, I've got to try this because what else can I do? I'm exhausted already. And I went down and I swam down six, eight, ten feet and he was right. It was completely calm down there. And I could have a break just as long as I could hold my breath. And I stopped panicking. And uh, I thought, right, I'll go up again to see what I can see. Oh, still can't see the beach. All right, go down again. And I did that three or four times. And then the fifth time I came up, I saw a rock stick, sticking out of the sea. And I headed for it with all my energy and grabbed this rock. And I had one of the most blissful moments of my life, hanging onto this rock. It, I wasn't even thinking, thank God I'm safe now, I'll be all right. I was simply thinking, isn't nature beautiful? <laughs> Look at that blue sky. Look at these waves. And I was in absolute ecstasy, bliss, and holding onto this rock. And then I looked back and, thought, and I could see the beach. I thought, oh, I'm all right now. But this was so, such a moment of oneness with nature. And his little words of advice saved my life, you know. And then uh, I hailed back to the beach and <laughs> there was a bunch of teenage boys who'd been actually been shouting over here to me. They were all too scared to actually jump in and yeah. save me, but I can't blame them. And they looked at me, this is just to add a little picturesque note to the story. <laughs> they looked at me in utter horror. And I thought, what's the matter? I'm all right now. And I looked down and my whole chest was a mass of red because the rock was covered in barnacles, barnacles. and mussels. Oh, my God. And I was ripped to pieces and I didn't oh. feel a thing. Didn't feel a thing, you know. And I don't <laughs> want to get on the morbid details too much because the point of the story is... When you're in a violent, panicky situation, go down, relax, yeah. chill. And I apply that now as much as I can to my daily life. 
And so in business or in finance, uh, things aren't going well, or in a, a relationship, just chill and go down and wait. Oh, Don't fight and get frantic. Yeah. And, I, and when I look back, I think I've actually always been like that. He just reminded me. You know, and, this, actually, and this near-death yeah. experience, which it was, reminded mm -hmm. me. And that's, a, that's actually yeah. a coaching technique. Um, that if you're feeling completely wild above the water, mm. that you actually imagine yourself going down underneath the water where it's really calm. Mm. And once you visualise getting there, you can be more creative and think about what you need to do more. Mm -hmm. Absolutely love it. So another thing I remember from that time is this, which is um, you told me a little secret, which was like, I think there might be something about Mott the Hoople doing a tour. And I was like, oh, really? And I was like, make the call, send the email, whatever it is you need to do, do the thing. Mm. Lo and behold, <laughs> right. this year it, it actually started, the wheel started in motion. Yeah, well, the Motley Hoople did do a couple of reunion tours prior to this one. First one was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But at that time, all members of the band were still with us. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't an original member, obviously. Yes. I joined halfway through after all the young dudes. But they all, the five original guys were still around and they said they wanted to do a tour. So I went and watched and they did five days in London and at the same theatre and I had a ball. Because yeah. friends from all over the world came and old friends, new friends. So they did that. Then a few people, not a few, quite a lot of fans said, well, it's a pity that Morgan and Ariel Bender, our guitarist, couldn't have been part of this. And especially because in the later period of the band, we played on the hits. So we yes. were there. We were the original guys on those records. Yes. And so our singer basically thought, yeah, that was a pity. Let's do it with the new guys this time. Yes. Especially because um, when we were in the band, that's when we got really big in America. So most American fans think of the Understand band with you. us. And that was this year's tour. And the way around too. that was to call it Mott the Hoople 74. Right. <laughs> Genius. To show that it's like the, Genius. It's like Mark II version of the band. Yes, you know? yes. So we did that and uh, it was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, our singer said on the last show, he said, I know it's going to be good, but I didn't know it would be this effing good. Oh. He was so pleased. Yeah. And the reviews were astounding. They were I mean. astounding. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the Variety magazine, which is the biggest one in America, said, at last, rock and roll has been revived properly. Mm -hmm. like, are we that good? All we're doing is having fun. But I just want to ask you one question here, a very practical one. Where do you get your energy from for this kind of thing? I well, mean, I've never lost it. I mean, you never lost it. It's always been there. Yeah. And um, even through my very quiet periods, yeah. I was keeping my spirit alive, if you like, because yeah. I've never been one for going to the gym or anything like no. that. No. It's, it's the camaraderie mm -hmm. is a huge part of that. The camaraderie, yeah. And the songs are great. They're from the heart. Now I listen to the songs properly. Back in the day, it's like, oh, yeah, great music. Yeah. Now I, I read all the lyrics and I'm very moved by the things he's, he's written. He's a very compassionate man. You know, you just love it, sharing this with people. Yeah. And the audiences, they're just amazing. I mean, grown men are weeping in the aisles because they've waited 40 years to see this. Oh. Or some of them have never seen it, and now at last, and this could be the last time. Every concert was like, this could be the last time in the audience. Yeah. They were thinking like that. So it's a very intense 
atmosphere and beautiful, you know, so that gives you huge amounts of energy. So to date then, Morgan, how would you wrap up your experience having listened to yourself talking here and... Well, Mary Harry. Mary Harry. word I love to use. Mary Harry. You just go with the flow and yeah. it's like, it's all effortless. But there is effort and there's energy, but yeah. there's no resisting what's happening around you. Yeah. So if that's a sort of key phrase of what I do, that, that's I it, it really, just go with the flow. Okay, well, thank you so much, Morgan. That was mm. fascinating, legendary. I absolutely, absolutely loved it. And you get the, the thank fries you. for your, and I'll change my hat. Now I can see me bored for a second, right? <laughs> Are we looking good? So I want to say a massive thing. You can stay in the shot if you want to, Morgan. <laughs> I want to say a huge, huge thank you to amazing Morgan for that. Um, as he said, that going up, Merry Harry, the ups, the downs, going with it, leading a long life and having so many things and going with the flow. And the, the thing that I love the most here is just waiting for those miracles to come in and find you and being ready for them mm. and really honoring the responsibilities that you have in the real world so that you can be ready for these miracles, so that you can have everything around you that you need to, to make the miracles happen. And just being connected to people and connected to nature and, taking all the lessons and being a person of integrity, authenticity, love, readiness, art, beauty. I'm just so thrilled that you agreed to do this interview. I adore you. Thank you, my darling. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not, but these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Faruya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Faruya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.